The Mystical Underground and Rob McGregor present an audio production of Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. Paul, I am certain that this is the actual staff that the Bible asserts Moses used to perform the miracles of the Exodus. Graham Phillips, author of the Moses Legacy. 20. The Cloud City. Maggie labored up the snow-covered slope, pushing higher and higher. Until this morning, she and Indy had hiked with five Sherpas, but four of them had turned back after breakfast saying it was too dangerous to continue. The region ahead was considered haunted and known for freak storms. Many people who had wandered into the area had disappeared and were never seen again. Of course, that hadn't deterred Indy. He was convinced they were going to find the staff of Moses, and they were close to it. Amazingly, one of the Sherpas, an older man, had said he would stay with them. Maggie, for her part, found it hard to believe that they were going to find anything ahead other than more snow and ice. Her cover as a magazine photographer, as well as her job as a British intelligence agent, had taken her around the world, but climbing the Himalayas in pursuit of an ancient artifact seemed an unlikely assignment. When they reached Kathmandu after fleeing Istanbul, Maggie dutifully telegraphed her home office and asked for further instructions. She figured she would be told to abandon the journey and return to London. To her surprise, her supervisor came back with a directive encouraging her to continue on. Stay with Dr. Jones. Do not allow the Nazis to capture the staff of Moses. She had gathered that this sort of trip was nothing unusual for Jones. From his stories, he'd traveled to some of the most remote places on the planet. It wasn't his first trip to Nepal either, and she had the distinct impression that a woman was involved in his last trip here. Pleased that she could continue, she'd informed Indy that he wasn't rid of her yet. He'd grinned. I like your company, and I like that you can handle yourself. Quite a compliment, considering its source. But now she was getting concerned that he was taking Professor Kingston's notes too literally. After all, If the staff of Moses was buried in the snow on a mountainside in the Himalayas, how would they ever find it? Finally, after hours of plodding through snow and over icy rocks, they stopped for their lunch lunch break under a crevice that blocked the wind. Maggie plopped down on a tarp. I'm exhausted, Indy, and it's barely noon. Any ideas how much farther? Let's check. He reached into the pocket of his parka and pulled out a leather pouch. He opened it and took out the shepherd. It fit nicely into the palm of his hand. He lifted the cover, revealing a compass, but not an ordinary compass. Ever since they had first looked at it on the train leaving Istanbul, it had pointed in a generally easterly direction rather than magnetic north. The farther east they traveled, the more luminous the dial had become. Once they had reached Kathmandu, the compass began to glow pale green. With each passing day, the glow had become brighter and brighter. Yesterday, it had started to blink every few seconds. This morning, it blinked about once a second. It was blinking now, even faster, maybe two blinks a second. We've got to be close, Cindy said. We don't know how this thing works, though. It didn't come with any instructions. That didn't bother Indy. I've got a gut feeling about it. Take my word, we're close. As they carried on into the afternoon, Indy hoped his confidence in finding the staff was well-founded. 
He kept avoiding the thought that it didn't make any sense. What was the likelihood of finding an ancient wood artifact on a snow-covered mountain? For the past hour, he'd expected that they would come to a monastery tucked on the side of the mountain. But when he asked Nawang Tupke, their remaining Sherpa, he'd simply shaken his head. This morning, the sky had been crystal clear, just like yesterday and the day before. The view of craggy white mountains in every direction outlined against the dark blue sky was breathtaking. He could see for miles and felt as if he were on top of the world. In a sense, that was close to the truth. After the other Sherpas had turned back, Nawang told Indy that in spite of the current weather conditions, to expect a storm. We'll find that monastery, I'm sure. Indy tried to sound confident. Again, Nawang shook his head. No monastery here. Now the wind was picking up and the temperature began to drop. It didn't look good, but his confidence in the shepherd drove Indy onward. At the same time, he was getting nervous. They had to find shelter soon before conditions deteriorated. The trail curved around a boulder and Indy felt a stabbing sensation against his leg right behind the pocket with the shepherd. He winced, wondering if it was just a tired muscle twitching under the strain of the hike. Nawang abruptly stopped and pointed to the snow. What is it? Indy asked. Footprints appeared on the trail. It was hard to believe that anyone could be out here, unless a monastery was nearby. Ghost prints, Nawang said. Snow swirled around them, blocking their view. Suddenly a spear slammed into a snowbank at the base of the boulder. Indy jumped, looked up. Several burly, fierce-looking Nepali men armed with harpoon-sized spears and muskets, leaped down from the boulder and surrounded them. They were dressed in fur hats and wore fur-lined armor, woven kilts over leggings and boots. One of the men exchanged a few sharp words with Nawang, who turned to Indy. We are prisoners. He says we go with them. What if we refuse? Nawang, a small man with a spark-plugged body, salt-and-pepper hair, and a scraggly goatee, pointed down the steep slope. They throw us off the mountain. I tell you, Jones, best to go with them. I agree, Maggie said. Let's go see what they want. Beats getting thrown off the mountain. One of the warriors waved a spear in a threatening manner, and Indy remembered the stabbing pain in his leg near the shepherd. The idea of a spear wound didn't appeal to him. He'd never make it back down the mountain. Let's go, he said. The warriors lowered their spears, closed in, patted their clothing, checking for weapons. Indy lost a knife, his whip, then the leather pouch containing the shepherd. Hey, do I get a receipt so I can get everything back when we leave? Uh, guess not, he muttered when no one offered a response. Then they were marching up the mountain as the weather went downhill. The wind howled, the snow whipped around them, the visibility fell to an arm's length. Indy leaned over Maggie's shoulder. This should be interesting. Interesting? I'm not sure that's the right word for it, Maggie spoke softly. How about scary, frightening, or horrifying? Hey, I was just trying to sound encouraging. They plotted another half hour before the warriors stopped. No one said anything. No one tried to seek shelter. Indy looked over at Nawang. What are we waiting for? They wait for a messenger to tell us that it's okay to enter the city. City? What city? It's called Suyadez. I have heard of it many times, but I've never been there. They say it can't be found unless you are invited. It is a great honor. Let us hope they allow us to enter. Did you know this was where we were headed? I was hoping so. That's why I stayed with you. A few minutes later, a young boy appeared. Indy didn't see him coming and didn't know where he'd come from. The news is good, Nawang announced, visibly relieved. We are all allowed inside. A strange sound like a buzzing swarm of bees suddenly erupted, distracting the warriors just as they were preparing to leave. One of the men dropped a pack and the warriors gathered around. They talked excitedly among themselves, glancing over at Indy. The sound seemed to circle around them. Sometimes it seemed to Indy as if it, as if he were only hearing it in his head. Then it would be clearly audible. 
The man who appeared to be the lead warrior opened the pack and took out the leather container. He motioned to Indy, who stepped forward. He wants you to open it, Noong said. The sound was louder now and seemed to swirl around Indy's head, both inside and outside. He opened the leather pouch, took out the shepherd. As soon as Indy lifted the top of the compass, the sound started to fade. The compass pulsated red, and Indy knew they had arrived. The warrior patted the air, indicating that Indy should carry it. The staff is here, he said to Maggie. Where? Wherever they're taking us. Even though they had been waiting here several minutes, Indy noticed for the first time that they were standing near a crevice in the mountainside. The young boy had led them between high stone walls and down a winding stone stairway. The wind died. The air felt warmer. The snowstorm vanished. The steps were damp with runoff from the snow above. Moss and lichen grew on the edges of the stone. He pulled back his hood, unzipped his parka, and felt an unexpected moist warmth against his cheeks. I'm starting to thaw out, Maggie said, loosening the ties of her coat. Me too. Indy reached into his pack, pulled out his fedora, popped it back into shape, and fitted it on his head. They continued down until they reached an overlook at the edge of the curving stairs. Noang motioned for him to join them. A fertile valley with a stream meandering through it opened below them. Trees and gardens surrounded a stone city built on narrow streets that all snaked towards a central plaza. An impressive palace built around a courtyard was visible on the far side of the city. Just beyond it was an ornate temple that abutted a mountain wall. People were working in the gardens and moving around the city streets far below. None of them appeared to be wearing winter clothing. Suyadez, Noang said in awe, dropping to his knees. Shambhala, Indy thought, recalling writings about the mystical hidden city described in Tibetan Buddhism. A few years ago, novelist James Hilton published Lost Horizon, a story based on that legend. For Indy, legend and reality had merged. Oddly enough, the light seemed different here, he thought. After days of harsh, bright light from sunlight reflecting off snow, it seemed dimmer. In spite of the warmth, it seemed that less light filtered into the valley. I think it's getting dark, Maggie said. It's almost like dusk, but it's too early. The sun's still above the mountain. Indy took out the shepherd again, lifted the top from the compass. The dial now glowed a brilliant purple, and a high-pitched whining sound emanated from it. The needle vibrated and pointed directly at the temple. The sky was growing darker by the minute. It seemed as if the sun was about to set. Then darkness slowly closed around them. As daylight vanished, the glow from the compass congealed and a purple beam shot out across the valley, striking the temple, illuminating it. Mesmerized by the beam of light, Indy lost track of time. His entire being was focused on the temple, and then he glimpsed a bearded man, a shepherd with a staff standing in front of the temple, raising his staff. The image faded as the sky began to brighten. The beam vanished and daylight returned as life in the tranquil valley resumed. It was an eclipse, Indy. The moon passed in front of the sun, Maggie said. Indy, shaken from the experience, closed the compass and returned the shepherd to the pouch. One of the warriors prodded him and Maggie with a spear, reminding them they were captives. They continued the descent into the surprisingly temperate city, tucked away in the high Himalayas. Let's hope they have comfortable beds for their prisoners, Maggie said. I could sleep 12 hours easily. Let's find out what they know about the staff of Moses first. Then we can see about accommodations. It seems such an unlikely place for a biblical artifact, she replied, shaking her head. Yeah, makes for a good hiding place. How are you going to find the staff if you can't find the city and don't even know that it exists? I get your point. On the way down, they passed several buildings that looked as if they were carved from the mountainside. Prayer flags flew from the rooftops. When they reached the city, the warriors closed in around them and kept them moving ahead over a cobbled roadway. 
Indy noticed that the shops were well stocked, indicating that goods from outside the valley arrived here from time to time. Colorful garbed Nepalese, curious about the strangers, stopped what they were doing and watched. He spotted a couple of children, a boy of about 10 and a girl a few years younger who had European features. He wondered what that meant. They were ushered into the plaza, surrounded by their guards and a growing crowd of curious bystanders who pressed closer and closer. The chief guard slammed his spear against the plaza floor several times and shouted for silence. The crowd instantly hushed, stepped back. The silence was broken by a voice speaking English. I knew it would be you. Welcome to Cloud City. And right during an eclipse of the sun, very interesting. A path opened in the crowd, and a bearded man, sitting upright in a wooden wheelchair, moved into view. Indy's jaw dropped. It was Charles Kingston. Twenty-one. One more surprise. His beard had grown long and white, but he still appeared strong and robust in spite of the wheelchair. Indy was stunned, trying to fathom what he was seeing. What the hell was going on? After all they'd gone through to get here, how could Kingston be alive? No doubt you are confused, Indy. I'll explain everything, but first please introduce me to your adventurous traveling companion. Maggie shook his hand, but Indy could tell she wasn't very pleased to meet him. Nice to meet you, Kingston said. You are not prisoners here. You are my guests. I know you are both tired. So why don't you go to your rooms and rest? We'll gather at dinner, and you can meet Bethany, my wonderful nurse and companion. And afterwards, I'll tell you my story. It's great to see you again, Indy said, but I think we deserve an explanation right now. I don't want to wait until after dinner. Kingston threw up his hands and laughed. Of course, I should have known. You always wanted answers right away. I was only attempting to play the role of accommodating host. Where's Bethany now? Maggie asked. He glanced towards the mountain. I believe she's in the temple. She's quite devout and also is very protective of the staff, I might add. So the staff of Moses is actually here? Maggie asked. Of course. Indy crossed his arms. Tell us about it. Let me at least make you more comfortable. After all, I'm sitting down. You should too. He raised a hand and whispered something to a young Nepalese man who had assisted him with the wheelchair. While they waited, Indy shrugged off his parka, revealing his leather jacket that usually accompanied his fedora. A couple of minutes later, thick cushions and a low table arrived, along with a pot of tea and three cups. Most of the people who had gathered had gone about their business. A few teenagers and children who remained behind sat cross-legged on the stone plaza. They drank the tea in silence, Kingston neither explaining himself nor attempting small talk. Finally, he set his cup down and cleared his throat. Years ago, when I first became interested in pursuing the staff of Moses, I heard the story of the shepherd compass. At first, I considered it an unsubstantiated legend, a mix of history and hocus-pocus. But as I continued my search for the staff, I kept encountering the shepherd legend. He explained that there were three shepherds that were created around 900 BC, about the time of the Exodus. One was hidden in a temple that would eventually be the site of the cisterns below the Sultan's Plaza in Istanbul. A second one was hidden on Mount Nebel, and a third somewhere in Tunisia. Finally, I looked deeper into the matter and began quietly searching for the shepherd. I found the one in Tunisia, buried in the storage room of a museum in Tunis. I went from Tunis to Istanbul, and with the help of the shepherd, I located the second one. It was in a time vault at the base of one of the pillars at the bottom of the cistern. My cousin Henry, the underwater adventurer, was exploring the Bosphorus at the time. So we brought his bathsphere into the cistern through the zoo. And of course we succeeded. Why did he leave his sphere there? Indy asked. 
That was his first one. He abandoned it in Istanbul for an improved model, one that he would take to 3,000 feet below the surface. Did you know the shepherd was hidden inside the bathysphere? A worthy sight, since very few people ever enter the cistern. I wish that you or Dr. Kazak would have just told me about the bathysphere in the first place, Indy grumbled. Kingston shook his head. You know by now, Indy, that Sacred objects cannot be found in the ordinary way. They are found by the seeker who follows his heart and the clues that mysteriously appear along the way. But I don't have to tell you that. He paused, poured himself more tea, offering it first to Maggie and Indy. As you can see, I also face serious challenges myself in my attempt to find the staff. What happened? Maggie asked, encouraging him to explain. Halfway up the mountain, our party was nearly buried in an avalanche. My spine was crushed. I laid helpless in the snow, freezing to death. I was on the edge of death when I was found and carried into the city by the Royal Guard, the same warriors who brought you here. They never leave a body on the mountainside. It's very bad luck. They thought I would die and they would bury me here. But you recovered, Indy said. Kingston tapped a hand against the wheelchair. In a matter of speaking, they found the compass and knew what it was. It was decided that if I was worthy enough to find the shepherd, then I was worthy enough to be saved. How did they know about the shepherd? Patience, Indy. You have all your answers in time. Right now, I'm telling you my story. His voice was firm, and Indy knew he wasn't going to learn any more about the city until Kingston was ready to talk about it. How did the people here save you, Maggie asked. They took me to the chamber where the staff of Moses was being kept, and I stirred back into consciousness. My blood warmed, my frostbite receded. I became lucid, and I realized where I was, that the staff was healing me. That's when I shouted for help. I told them to stop. You mean you didn't want to be healed, Maggie asked? Of course I wanted to walk again, but I've studied ancient power objects my entire career and I understand the consequences of calling on those powers. It's a path to obsession and eventually self-destruction. You are never the same again. How did the staff get here? Indy asked. What is this place? Suyadez is all about the staff. The city was founded by adepts, spiritually evolved souls. They called themselves the guardians of the staff. Some were Nepali monks. Others came from Europe and the Middle East and elsewhere. Some of their descendants still live here. How did they find this place, he asked. They didn't really find it. They created it, in essence, with the staff. Even though the city is locked in a frozen Himalayan environment, it's kept pleasant and habitable and also supplied with fresh drinking water through the power of the staff of Moses. Then he was still baffled by Kingston's disappearance. Why didn't you write to anyone to say you're still alive? Kingston shook his head. Far too dangerous. A letter would have attracted attention and bring people here, including wrong-minded people. Suyadez is difficult to find, but not impossible. Why didn't you leave, Maggie asked. Sherpas could have carried you down the mountain on a stretcher. You don't understand. Unfortunately, I am dependent on the staff. It provides me sustenance. I would die if I were separated from it. But we came here to get it, following your instructions, Indy said. Unfortunately, that was a mistake. Our friend, Archie Tan, shouldn't have gotten you involved. Charles, the reason Archie alerted me was that a certain wrong-headed menace named Magnus Voller was threatening him if he didn't turn over the Jade Sphere and tell everything he knew about you and your quest. Oh dear, I'm sorry for Archie. What is wrong with Magnus? It's hard to believe he was one of my best students. Yeah, until you threw him out of the program for acting on his own and almost killing me in the process. I haven't forgotten, Indy but the staff is safe here. Maggie set down her cup of tea. Dr. Kingston, maybe it would be better if the staff were in the hands of people who could protect it from the Germans and protect you. 
It's only a matter of time before Voller finds this place, and he added. Kingston frowned, turned to the head of the royal guard, and spoke in Nepalese. The burly warrior shook his head forcefully as he answered brusquely. Kingston turned back to Indy. He basically said poppycock. He has 500 warriors defending the city. No army can make it up the mountain without us knowing it. We are completely safe here. A deep rumbling sound caught Indy's attention. It seemed to roll across the city like thunder, announcing a rainstorm. Everyone looked up, but instead of a dark cloud overhead, a massive twin-hulled zeflin emerged from the mist. Swastikas adorned its vertical stabilizers. There it was, the lost city in the clouds, high in the Himalayas, at the exact coordinates Kingston had given the museum curator at the Sultan's palace years ago. Why Mustafa Kazak had never told anyone the whereabouts of the missing archaeologist was a mystery, unless that was Kingston's wishes. In that case, Kingston might not have died, but preferred to keep his whereabouts secret. Voller stood in the cockpit as the giant vessel, the Olden, eased over the stone city. He spotted a building that resembled a temple at the edge of the city that seemed to merge with the mountain. That would be the first target to search for the staff. The Odin itself was striking enough to frighten the quaint backward folks below. In fact, it was the largest airship ever constructed. Originally designed to be a luxury liner of the sky, it was taken over by Voller's group after the Hindenburg disaster. The intent was for Voller to use it as a mobile archaeology laboratory, but that was only part of his purpose in the current excursion. It was also a warship, as the residents of this city in the clouds were about to find out. It was built strongly enough to carry a platoon of well-armed paratroopers, as well as fighter planes and ground vehicles. He turned to the commander of the Odin's weaponry and snapped an order that was quickly passed down the chain of command. Just in case the local armory decided to mount a coordinated defense, Voller wanted to soften the resistance with an immediate air-to-ground barrage. Maggie, like everyone else, stood in awe at the sight of the massive zeppelin filling the sky above the city. Suddenly, a dozen ropes dropped from the gondola and soldiers began rappelling to the ground. Bullets ricocheted off the plaza floor, raising a line of dust. Voller's here, she shouted and turned to run. And he didn't have to climb the mountain. Kingston's young helper was already wheeling him out of the plaza. Jones, your legs still work, Kingston yelled. Go to the temple, save the staff. Right. Indy raced off, Maggie loping alongside him. They dodged through the maze of narrow streets, working their way towards the temple. But after a couple of minutes, neither of them knew which way to turn. Temple? Where's the temple? Maggie asked the teenage boy. He stared at her, pointing up at the Zeppelin. That is no temple, Indy said, and they hurried on. They turned a corner and abruptly came face to face with a pair of Nazis who raised their bolt-action rifles. Halt! Maggie and Indy stopped in their tracks, raised their arms. Bersindu, who are you? One of the Nazis demanded. Maggie smiled. Touristen, just tourists, hiking in the mountains. Yasser gesund, very good, healthy. Good for the hers, Indy added. Good for the heart. One of the soldiers motioned with his rifle. Du kommst mit uns. You come with us. We take you prisoner. Maggie shook her head. No, no, no. We didn't. Nothing bad. She buried her face in her hands, sank to one knee and started crying. The soldier tugged on her arm. Go, Komen, Komen, come, come, Fraulein. Maggie bolted upright and moving at the speed of light, kicked him between the legs, grabbed the rifle barrel with her left hand, slammed the other end into his forehead. He stumbled back, eyes wide with shock and surprise, crashed to the ground. Next to her, Andy struggled for control of the other rifle. He and the soldier spun around and the rifle fired, the bullet zipping past Maggie's ear. She swung her new rifle, clipping the soldier on the back of the head and he dropped next to his buddy. Indy looked at her in amazement. I'm impressed. You bloody better be. Let's go. As they raced off again, rifles in hand, Indy spotted the Zeppelin. 
It hovered low now over the palace and soldiers were dropping down into the courtyard. Indy pointed towards it. That way, fast. They turned another corner and nearly collided with several members of the Royal Guard. They were shoved against a wall, disarmed of their newfound rifles. Several spears and a musket were aimed at them. Nearby, three Nazis lay on the ground, blood covering the front of their uniforms. No, we're not Nazis, he pointed towards Zeppelin, shook his head, but they didn't seem to understand. One of the guards shouted something to the men and for a moment, Indy thought it was an execution order, but he heard one familiar word, Kingston. The guards immediately lowered their spheres, turned away and rushed off. Whew, that was close. You okay? We didn't keep those rifles very long, she replied. Easy come, easy go. They raced after the guard unit, following them all the way to the palace. They stopped near a large tree with a massive trunk, watching Nazis and the Royal Guard engaged in hand-to-hand combat 50 yards away. Let's get to the temple while Voller's gang is occupied here, Indy said. The temple is located higher on the mountainside beyond the palace, but Indy couldn't see any way of getting there. He jumped back, startled, reached for his knife as something fell out of the tree. It was the kid who'd assisted Kingston. The professor says, you best go through the palace to the temple. That's the fast way. It doesn't exactly look that way. You take the guard's entrance on the side. Rifles fired, spears plunged, shouts, screams, and groans filled the air. Thanks, Indy said, but the kid had already disappeared. They hurried away and moved along the side of the palace to the unguarded entrance. They slipped quickly inside and followed the steps leading upward to a huge atrium. He gazed upward to a mezzanine where several men were tied together and marched ahead by Nazis. Others in the atrium and on the mezzanine were sprawled on the floor, dead. Shouts and cries echoed through the halls from interior chambers. They crept deeper into the palace, staying close to the walls, ducking into doorways, peering around corners, watching for rampaging Nazis. The palace was modest compared to the expansive and well-appointed Sultan's Palace in Istanbul. From the mountainside, India had seen a courtyard surrounded by a two-story building on four sides. Besides the majestic atrium, the building consisted of hallways with chambers on either side. The second level, he guessed, housed living quarters. They found a doorway to the courtyard, but it was too dangerous to step out in the open and expose themselves to Nazi gunfire that could come from any direction. Indy knew there must be a rear exit that would lead to the temple, but he was just guessing. Maybe this is the way out, he said, when they glimpsed a door facing the rear of the palace. He opened it and glimpsed several Nazis pillaging through cabinets and drawers in a chamber. He quickly closed the door, just as one of the Nazis looked in his direction. He heard a shout from inside the room. A gunshot rang out, blasting a hole in the door. Run, damn it, run! They raced down the hallway to the next door, ducked inside it. Indy hoped it would lead outside, but he found himself in a small darkened room. He closed the door, then quickly shoved a cabinet in front of it. He looked around for more furniture, but there was only a table and chairs. Do you think that'll hold? Maggie asked, catching her breath. Not for long. Maybe they won't look here, she said hopefully. Then the door rattled, bodies slammed against it. Indy and Maggie pushed back on the cabinet but the door was already creaking open. They were trapped, but maybe Voller wanted them alive. That thought was abruptly negated by the report of another weapon, followed by a succession of shots as bullets ripped through the door and cabinet, barely missing them. Then again, maybe Voller didn't care whether they were captured or killed. Twenty-two. The staff temple. There was a pause in the shooting, and Indy heard a creaking sound behind him. Then a woman's voice, speaking in a crisp British accent. Dr. Jones, right this way, quickly. An attractive middle-aged blonde woman stood in the doorway of a closet, armed with a submachine gun, as well as grenades and a vicious-looking knife on her belt. She wore a backpack that probably contained more such deadly goodies. No time to ask for explanations. He and Maggie followed her through a three-foot-high door hidden in the back of a closet. Indy clambered down several steps and found himself in a dank, narrow tunnel. After closing the door, she latched a grid of steel behind it. The ends of the bars were buried in concrete pilings. That should hold them off, Indy said. 
Maybe. The woman picked up a kerosene lantern. The tunnel leads to the staff temple, the woman explained. That is where you want to go, isn't it, Dr. Jones? Better do just fine. You know my name, but I don't know yours. Who are you? Bethany, Dr. Kingston's nurse. She motioned them to follow her down the tunnel. I've known Charles for years. We met in uh, Chicago. By the way, I've heard a lot about you, Dr. Jones. Charles has followed your career from afar with my help. I come and go from time to time. I wish he would have kept in touch. He's been very concerned about intruders and obviously for good reasons. The Nazis have always taken an interest in the region for its mysticism and legends. Last year, Himmler led an expedition to Tibet, supposedly in search of the roots of the Aryan race. Now they're here to steal the staff. Let's hope they don't have any better luck here than they did looking for a non-existent race, Indy responded. How did you know we were in that room? Maggie asked as they continued walking. Because I was in there too, spying on the bastards until you two rushed inside. You just didn't see me. They reached a ladder that led up to another door. We're right below the temple now. The door opens into a small room that leads out into the main chamber where you'll see a five-foot-tall statue of Vishnu, the supreme being of Hinduism. In this version of Vishnu, he appears as Narasimha, who is man-lion, Vishnu's fourth incarnation. Are you sure this is the staff temple? Of course I'm sure. The presence of the staff of Moses presents no conflict here. Hinduism accepts all beliefs as alternate versions of the same truth. All power objects, such as the staff, are respected. That's unusual, Indy said. Their conflicts tend to be sectarian, internal. In fact, that might be the reason word got out about the location of this sacred city. So where's the staff? I need to get it out of here before it's too late. When she hesitated, he added, Dr. Kingston asked me to take it. She nodded, but didn't look pleased. Walk past the Vishnu statue to the rear of the temple. You'll see three doors. The staff chamber is behind one of them. You'll have to pick out the right one. That's the rule. You have to prove yourself. Yeah, over and over again. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. I hate to ask, but what's behind the other two doors? Bad luck and very bad luck. It's best to pick the right one and not find out anything else. Are you coming with us, Maggie asked. I'm going to guard this entrance. She hitched her backpack. I have a surprise, a flaming concoction for any Nazis who come down the tunnel. Indy thanked her and climbed up into the temple. Maggie followed only after saying something to Bethany that he couldn't hear. Maggie was stunned by the encounter with Bethany, someone she knew by a different name. Artis Moore was a famous field medic who received medals for bravery and heroism for her death-defying feats in World War I. She was known as much for her combat role as her work saving soldiers' lives. Then, she'd gotten involved in a sex scandal with a high-ranking member of the British Parliament. Shortly after that, she disappeared on an expedition to the Himalayas and was assumed dead. She followed Indy into a barren room with a 50-foot-high ceiling and the striking Vishnu statue in the center of the room. Huge double doors at the main entrance were fortified with heavy bars, indicating serious preparations were made to defend the staff. Just as Bethany had said, there were three doors at the rear of the temple, each one painted royal blue. How are you going to pick the right one, she asked. He shook his head. Good question. I'm still thinking about that woman back there. What about her? For a nurse, she was really armed to the teeth. Maggie laughed. Yeah, I noticed. Guess she was prepared. So which door would you pick? Indy asked. That's easy. The one with the staff behind it. Uh, very funny. Oh, what, a, what the hell? He reached for the door on the right. The moment he touched the handle, a pounding erupted at the entrance. Indy released the handle as if it were burning hot and spun around to see the enormous doors shuddering under the impact of something large and heavy. Guess someone wants in. We better make it fast. He turned back to the three doors. Think I'll try a different one. He reached for the center door 
And again, just as he was about to open it, an explosion from below rocked the temple. Dust drifted down from the rafters. I think they blew up the gate blocking the tunnel, Maggie said. Gunfire followed, then another loud pop. This one Indy recognized as a hand grenade exploding. Sounds like the nurse is in full battle mode. She's not an ordinary nurse, Maggie replied. I guessed as much. With that, Indy stepped up to the third door, touched the handle. A silence fell over the temple. The banging at the entrance stopped. So did the gunfire from the tunnel. He opened the door and cool air rushed over him along with the scent of earth. Of course, Maggie thought, the temple backed up to the mountain and apparently was built in front of a cave. Indy stepped inside and Maggie started to follow, but as soon as she reached the doorway, she stopped. Pressure began building against her temples and spread along the sides of her head. She felt as if she were in the grip of a giant invisible vice. She had difficulty breathing and a shrill whistle-like sound screeched inside her head. She clasped her hands over her ears, staggered and fell. Indy lunged for her aid and helped her as she crawled out of the cave. Immediately, the pressure eased. Maggie, what happened? She caught her breath, recovering. Didn't you feel it? The bleeding pressure, Indy? It was horrible. I thought I was about to give up the ghost. I didn't feel it. In fact, it was just the opposite. The cave seemed light and airy. I felt really good, actually. Did you smell the flowers? The battering of the door at the entrance started again. Maggie waved a hand. Go on, Indy. Get the staff. I'll wait here. Just don't forget about me. Are you sure you don't want to come with me? I won't be going back there. You can bloody count on that. Now go on with you and hurry it up. Indy couldn't identify the source of the illumination, but when he closed the door behind him, the cave grew even brighter. Hanging stalactites and protruding stalagmites literally glowed in the cavern. Even though he was in a hurry to find the staff and get away, he moved cautiously ahead. In his experience, sacred artifacts, even within sight, were not necessarily within grasp. He broke off a stalagmite that looked like a long, gnarled finger. He did so with regret that he was destroying something that had taken centuries for nature to create, but he needed to make use of it. Even though the cavern seemed to beckon him forward, the path between the tights and the mites raised his suspicions. With each step, he tapped the floor with his newly acquired extra-long cane. On the third step, his suspicions were confirmed. A moment after he tapped his cane, several spears burst through the floor like man-made stalagmites. In spite of triggering it with his might, one of the spears missed his crutch by inches. He reached out and touched the sharp blade, swallowed hard, his eyes widening. What next? He cautiously worked his way around the spear, tapping his way like a blind man, moving carefully through the deadly forest of tights and mites. He called on all of his senses and then some. He stopped as he reached an opening. Then he saw it. The staff of Moses was suspended vertically in the center of the cavern. Unattached by any visible means, the stalagmites and stalactites appeared to bend away from it. The moment captured his imagination, overwhelmed him, banishing any trace of cynicism. In his head, majestic, uplifting, angelic music played, filled the cavern, and he felt an incredible soaring sensation. He didn't want to move, didn't want the experience to end. There it was, a simple wood staff, but one empowered by the source and wielded by an ancient leader whose name was well known to this day. In spite of the millennia since Moses' time, the staff appeared to be in good condition as if it had just left its master's hand. He felt incredibly fortunate to have come this far, to have reached this moment, and again wished it would never end. Indy's reverie was abruptly broken, snatched from him by an explosion that rocked the cavern. The bastards had broken through the door and were surging on the temple and Maggie was out there, and he was torn between moving toward the staff and making a quick retreat. He had an urge to step up, snatch the staff, and rush with it into battle to save Maggie and escape, but he recognized that would be foolhardy. 
Worthy or not, he sensed that another step toward the staff would result in instant death. Yet if he left without the staff, he might never have a second chance to retrieve it. The enormous doors at the front of the temple toppled with a thunderous crash and the Nazis rushed inside. She reached for the door where Indy had disappeared, pulled on it, but it wouldn't budge. She slumped down as if to hide, but a moment later they were upon her, pulling her to her feet, twisting around, tossing her against the wall. Where is he? One of them demanded. A hand clamped to her throat, his pale blue eyes burning into her. She moved her mouth, but no sound issued from her lips. The pressure eased, and as she caught her breath, she recognized Magnus Voller. Where is your Dr. Jones? He said through gritted teeth, his face with its sharp features pressed close to hers, his full breath washed over her, and she wanted to gag. Behind the door, which one? For a moment, her eyes strayed toward the blue door Indy had entered. Then she motioned in the other direction. That one, on the end. Fuller shoved her away, stepped over to the door Indy had entered, tugged on the handle, throttled it, with the same results as when Maggie had tried it. He glanced over at her. I will get it in there. He motioned to one of his men. Set the charges on this door. You're wasting your time, Maggie said. You've got the wrong door. No, you're trying to slow me down, but I'll play your game. He waved a hand to several of his men who had gathered nearby. Open those doors right now. He tugged on Maggie's arm. You better not be lying. You pay with your life if he's not in there. To Maggie's surprise, the doors opened, one after another. On the first attempt, the men stared in. One of them shook his head. Nothing. No, wait. There is something. A blast then another blew the doors off their hinges. Balls of fire rolled out, enveloping the invaders, knocking them back. Maggie dropped to the floor amid screams from the burning men. She rolled over and over, away from the heat and toward the battered entrance to the temple. She crawled on her hands and knees, but ten feet from the doorway, a hand clamped onto her ankle. She kicked and twisted, wriggled to free herself, but the hand held on. You're not going anywhere, O'Malley, Voller said. Another contingent of Nazis rushed into the temple, and she knew he was right. Indy realized he had no choice but to get the staff, find Maggie, and make their escape. After all, as he told Kingston, he hadn't come all this way just to turn around when the staff was within reach. He had to make the effort. No choice in the matter. Still holding the broken stalagmite, he tapped the floor in front of him, took a couple more steps. Nothing happened. Another step, and the staff would be within reach. He heard two more explosions in quick succession. Closer this time, near the rear of the temple, dust rained down from the ceiling of the cavern, and his thoughts turned to Maggie again. Keep going, he told himself. She came here on her own volition, and she was trained to deal with adversity. He focused on the floor, tapped again, and watched the floor. Unconsciously, he squeezed his knees together, remembering the spears that had shot up from the floor. Nothing happened, but he wasn't convinced. He raised his eyes just as a dozen or more spears rained down from the ceiling of the cavern. One of them struck his stalagmite, shattering it. Another skimmed his shoulder. He twisted around. There were spears on every side, boxing him in. He grabbed a couple of them, tried to pull them, tried to rip them from the floor, but they were frozen in place, unmovable. Frustrated, he shook the spears, but to no avail. The staff hovered just outside the corral of spears, out of reach. It might as well have been half a world away. Then he realized how he might reach it. He loosened the whip from his hip stuck his arm through the cage. One snap of his wrist, and he could snag the staff and pull it to him. He released the whip, but it remained curled up, stiff from the cold. He pulled it back in, stretched it out, shook it, and ran his hand over the length of it. He cracked it a couple of times, testing it. Finally, when it was loose enough, he reached through the spears again and unfurled it and snapped his wrist. The whip curled around the staff, and he carefully reeled it in. As soon as he reached for the staff and snagged it, the spears started to lean away. He stepped through them easily now, 
and headed for the door. The staff felt heavy and hard, and he realized that it had petrified. But there was no time to examine it or even think about what he held in his grasp. He had to get out and help Maggie. Just as he reached the door, another explosion rocked the temple. The door flew off its hinges, slamming into him with a powerful force, knocking him onto his back, covering him. He was vaguely aware of the staff slipping from his hand. Then everything went black. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. Mystical.